So that brings us to the third and final section, and that's the visions of Israel's judgment. And God's actually going to give visions to Amos, illustrating the judgments that are about ready to come, and the different forms it's going to take, and the way that he's going to paint that picture. Chapter 7, verse 1. The sovereign Yahweh showed me this. I saw him making locusts just as crops planted late were beginning to sprout. Crops planted late sprouted the royal harvest. When they had completely consumed the earth's vegetation, I said, Sovereign Yahweh, forgive Israel. How can Jacob survive? He is too weak. Yahweh decided not to do this. It will not happen, Yahweh said. So God gives him a vision and says, I'm going to bring locusts. And they're going to devastate. Now, according to Deuteronomy, this is one of God's first horrible judgments he brings when you begin to walk away and fall away. Famine and locusts. And locusts can devastate crops. A plague of locusts has anywhere between 100 to 200,000 locusts in a square mile. And they can devastate that square mile in under five minutes. The locusts are an incredible fast-paced lawnmower on your crops. And that's the last thing you're going to want to have in an agriculturally dependent culture. And this is one of the ways that God judges them. But this doesn't happen a lot. Um, We saw this on Egypt. And then when God came to Israel, he said, If you practice the same sins as Egypt, I will bring the same plagues upon you. Now, there have been teeny little minor locusts that have come in, but not like a devastating plague like what we saw in Egypt. So that's what Yahweh is saying. I'm going to bring this. And then Amos intercedes on their behalf. He acts like a priest. He acts like Moses. And he says, please, God, they can't handle this. This would not be good. And God says, okay, because we are in the divine council of Yahweh right now. And remember, Amos has been brought up into the divine council of Yahweh, and Yahweh is allowing him to participate in the judgment on the people. Just like he came to Abraham and said, hey, I'll allow you to have input on what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, remember, God doesn't need our input. And he can overrule us at any time because he has an ultimate will that he's going to execute no matter what. But he's a God who wants us to join him. And the same way that he doesn't need you to build the kingdom of God. He doesn't need you to witness to people. He doesn't need you to go over there and talk to that person and give them encouragement. Yet, as his children, he wants you to join him in that. And just like my children, I want them to join me when I'm building things and doing things. And we even allow them to help pick out some paint colors when we're doing things. We allow them to participate, but we have every right to say, no, not hot pink. We're not going that route. Like, so there's still a, we are sovereign over them to a certain extent. And we're going to make sure things match. That's the same way that God operates with us. He allows us at different times to help make decisions on what route things will go, but we still are operating with the ultimate will of God parameters. And there is still a path that he will not deter from because he is Yahweh and only he knows the future and only he knows how to run the universe with wisdom. And we don't. He abstains from that. That brings us to the next vision. In verse 4, Sovereign Yahweh showed me this. I saw the Sovereign Yahweh summoning a shower A fire, it consumed the great deep and devoured the fields. I said, Sovereign Yahweh, stop. How can Jacob survive, which is another name for Israel? He is too weak. 
Yahweh decided not to do this. And Yahweh, sovereign Yahweh said this will not happen either. So he was going to bring a fire that was going to consume the land and the ocean, the deep. I have no idea what that would actually look like because we haven't seen anything like that. The third vision, verse 7, it says, He showed me this. I saw the sovereign Yahweh standing by a ten wall, holding ten in his hand. And Yahweh said to me, What do you see? Many of your Bible translations are like, What are you reading? Because yours says a plumb line. And he held a plumb line up. And a plumb line is basically a, a weight with a string that helps level things vertically rather than horizontally. However, this word anak is, um, means lead, and a lot of people have misunderstood this as plumb over the line, over the years. Actually, most people had no idea what this word meant for a long time. And so they assumed that it was kind of this lead idea, so it must be a plumb line. That was an assumption based on not knowing what the word actually meant. But now, through the, um, with many, many, many more manuscripts that have been discovered since um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that kind of stuff. And we have now have a better understanding of the language. Most likely this word should be ten. And the idea is not that that's a lead weight hanging, but a ten wall that has been hammered out. And basically it's hammered out in this ten wall. Basically what he's showing them is the vulnerability of Israel. Okay, you had stone walls. But I'm turning your walls to tin, okay, T-I-N, meaning that it's going to become very vulnerable and the enemy is going to break through. And that makes more sense in the context of what he's talking about because what he's talking about is a judgment that is coming and the destruction that is coming. So he says, look, I'm about to place tin among my people Israel. I will no longer overlook their sin. Isaac's centers of worship will become desolate. Israel's holy places will be in ruins. I will attack Jeroboam's dynasty with the sword. So the idea that God is saying is, look, I'm going to replace your defenses with from stone to tin. And you're going to become absolutely weak. And you're not going to be able to stop the onslaught of the judgment and all your holy places and all your sacred places and all your powers of center or centers of power are going to be destroyed. You're not going to be able to stop this. And this is something we're going to see over and over and over again where God is saying you are not going to be able to stop what's coming. No matter how great you think you are, you're not going to be able to stop this. Then he pauses before he goes to the fourth vision and he talks about the priest in Bethel. Now, if you remember in Kings, so 1 Kings chapter 13, basically the kingdom split into the north and the south, and the first king over the south in Judah was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and the first king over the, king, over the kingdom of Israel in the north was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a different family than David. And Jeroboam feared that the people would abandon him and go to Judah to worship God and stay there. So he decided to rectify that by building two golden calves. And he put a golden calf all the way in the north in Dan, so that nobody in the north would have to travel too far. And he put one in Bethel right on the border before he got to Jerusalem. So you don't even have to go across the border into Jerusalem where the temple of God is to worship him there. I'm going to put one right there. Like 10 miles away from Jerusalem is Bethel, and there's a golden calf. So Bethel became a hot center of pagan idolatry 
to the golden calf worship. So Amaziah, the priest in Bethel, is a priest over the golden calf worships, or worshiping the golden calf. So he is not a good priest. So Amaziah, verse 10, the priests of Bethel sent this message to King Jeroboam of Israel. Amos is conspiring against you in the very heart of the kingdom of Israel. The land cannot endure all of his prophecies. As a matter of fact, Amos is saying this, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly be carried into exile away from its land. So he's basically saying, Jeroboam, you need to kill this guy and stop him because he's prophesying against us, and that's not good. Now, nowhere in the prophecy has Amos specifically said Jeroboam's going to die. Now, maybe he said that somewhere else and it's not recorded here, but he's definitely said you're going to be carried off in exile. So Amaziah doesn't like this, and he wants Amos to die. So this, the prophets were often resisted by the people of Israel. They were often, there were many assassination attempts on them at different times, and many of the prophets were actually executed. Verse 12, Amaziah then said to Amos, Leave, you visionary. Run away to the land of Judah. Earn your living and prophesy there. Don't prophesy at Bethel any longer, for a royal temple and palace are here. Now, interestingly, he tells them to leave and go to Judah, but don't stay here because there's a royal palace and a temple here. Well, the real one is in Jerusalem. So he's discrediting that one as legit. Amos replied to Amaziah, I was not a prophet by profession. No, I was a herdsman who also took care of the sycamore fig trees. And then Yahweh took me from tending flocks and gave me this commission. Go prophesy to my people Israel. So now listen to Yahweh's message. You say, don't prophesy against Israel. Don't preach against the family of Isaac. So Amos is basically saying, look, it was not my dream as a little boy to grow up and be a prophet. Okay, I was a shepherd and I was good at what I did. But God called me to say this. I didn't go into this because I wanted to. I mean, not like this is my dream. I didn't go into it to make money. I went into it because God called me and I feel compelled. And God is telling me to say this. Therefore, this is what Yahweh says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the streets and your sons and daughters will die violently. Your land will be given to the others and you will die in a foreign land. And Israel will certainly be carried into exile away from its land. Now, that seems really harsh. But the idea is not that God is, most scholars believe this, not God saying like, I'm going to force your wife to be a prostitute. The idea is that God is saying judgment is coming, period, because of all your sins and all your idolatry. But especially for you, Amaziah, because you're part of the Abrahamic covenant and you're part of the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant, you agreed to obey God under penalty of his law. Okay, remember, God didn't put this covenant on everybody else in the world. He didn't go to everybody in the world and said, I'm going to force you under my covenant, and I'm going to hold you accountable to all the laws. He put the, he, Israel did. And Deuteronomy chapter 13, Deuteronomy 18 says that all false priests, all false prophets that intentionally lead the people of Israel into idolatry are to be killed. Now, that feels harsh to you, but remember, what you think about God determines how you think about everything else. And if you're being led into other gods that are involved in all kinds of horrible, evil, nasty sins that affect lots of people, this is not good. 
especially when you said, I will follow Yahweh, and may he punish me according to the punishments of the law, and I'm going to sign this in the blood sacrifice of my animal. When you agree to that covenant, then you're agreeing to the penalties of the covenant. God never, ever, ever, ever said that it was okay for you to go into other nations and put their priests of idolatry and their priests of pagan gods to death. They're not a part of the covenant of God. They didn't agree to that. Therefore, you cannot go other nations and start punishing them and killing them only accountable. But the people of God did agree to the covenant. And they agreed to it knowing the penalty of violating it. Amos is basically saying to Amaziah, is you're part of the Mosaic covenant, Amaziah, and you're a priest intentionally leading Israel into idolatry. And not only that, you have tried to get the king to kill the prophet of God, to kill the voice and the word and the prophecy of God. And you don't get any more evil than that when you say, hey, let's worship other gods and let's actually kill God's voice and kill his will. And so he's saying to you, you're all going to exile, but you especially, Amaziah, it's not going to be good for your family. It's going to be so bad for your family that you're going to die, and those who survive are going to have to resort to desperate measures to stay alive. He's not saying, I'm forcing your family into prostitution. He's saying, I'm bringing judgment against your family, and these are the choices your family is going to make as a result, trying to survive. And why would your wife become a prostitute? Because once again, it's a further demonstration that she's still not trusting God. You don't need to go into that lifestyle. You don't need to do that kind of stuff if you trust God. Now, the other thing that I need to highlight is not only are they deserving of this punishment because God hates sin and he deals with sin, but because they also made a covenant agreeing to the penalties. But what we've seen with many, many different people throughout the book, especially David, who killed a man and raped a woman, both bringing the death penalty, and yet he escaped the death penalty because he repented. And God does not always enforce the full penalty of the law if you repent. Now, repentance is not a guarantee that you will not be punished. And even when David murdered and repented and was forgiven and was not killed, he still reaped consequences. He did not reap condemnation, but he did reap consequences. And that's what the Bible says for us. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. But we know we will face consequences. Okay? We will not go to hell and be separated from God for a sin, but there are consequences in our family and our relationships when we do ungodly things, and we, we feel them. And so this is what God is saying. If you repent, you could escape this. And when this judgment comes upon you, if you choose to repent after the judgment, you could escape your, your going to your own devices to protect yourself. Now, I know that's not all there in that little paragraph, but it doesn't have to be there because that is continuously the character of God through all the books that we've seen. And remember, we don't take a snapshot of God and hold this paragraph up and say, that's who he is. We put every paragraph in the context of all the books that, he, that has revealed who he is. And over and over and over and over again, we've consistently seen they agreed to this Therefore, they deserve it. God doesn't tolerate sin. Therefore, he has every right to punish it. And at any moment, you can repent and escape often the, the, either the entirety or the biggest brunt of the judgment. 
And even in the midst of the judgment, you can turn back to God and begin to trust him and things will turn out well for you. Just like David did. When everything was falling apart in his house and his son was trying to kill him and his other son had been killed and his daughter had been raped and all this was his fault because of his parenting, and eventually he woke up and he turned back to God and God began to fix things in his family. Even though the consequences are happening because of his sin, that God put on him because of his sin, but at the same time he turned to God and God began to fix things. This is the character of God. But Mazia is not going to repent and oral his family. And that's why this is going to happen. God will deal with the leaders who lead you astray. Period. Chapter 8, verse 1. We come to the fourth vision. And this one, Sovereign Yahweh showed me this. I saw a basket of summer fruit. And he said, What do you see, Amos? I replied, A basket of summer fruit. And the Yahweh said to me, The end has come for my people Israel. I will no longer overlook their sins. Now this is where we see the wit and the amazing mind that Amos has that is in tune with God. So God shows him a vision of a basket of fruit. And Amos, God says, hey, what do you see, Amos? And Amos says, a basket of fruit. Now for most of you in the English, you're like, duh, that's not like that amazing. Okay, most little kids can point that out. Yeah, but he could have said all kinds of stuff. He could have said, because if you're like a lot of kids, you put a basket of fruit there, and some kids would be like, I see apples. Okay, they just focus on one little detail. Or they'll be like, I see like red collars, because their mind works that way. Or they'll say, I just see a basket. Or I see gross stuff that I don't want to eat. Okay, you can get all kinds of answers from people, even adults. If you put this in front of them, there's so many different things that an adult could say. But Amos says a basket of fruit. And the reason is because he's in tune with God. Because the word that for fruit is the ripe fruit. That's the, the key. He emphasizes the word ripe. I see a basket of ripe fruit. And that's where your loud translation says summer fruit. That's the key here, because he could have just said fruit, he could have just said apples, he could have just said a basket, he could have said food, but he said ripe fruit. Because the Hebrew word here is kayetz, kayetz, and the word for end is kayetz, okay? They phonetically sound the same. So he's doing a pun, and puns are big time in the Bible. God uses puns a lot. And so what he's doing is he literally picks the word because he's seen the visions. He saw the vision of the ten. He saw the vision of the locusts. He saw the vision of the fire. And he gets that judgment is coming. And of all the words he could pick, he picked the word that phonetically sounded like the end. It's the end of Israel. And God said, good job. Like you're paying attention. The real question was not what did you see. The real question is, what is going to happen, do you see? Okay, that's what God is asking. Remember, he's a prophet on the divine council. And one of the other words for a prophet is a seer, S-E-E-R, a seer, someone who sees out into the future with wisdom and sees the long-term consequences or see what's coming and sees the ramifications of everything. And in all this context, God puts a basket of fruit there and he says, I see ripe. The end. And God says, you're ripe. Because Israel is ripe for judgment. 
This is a pun. This is a pun that God is playing out here. The pun is, I placed ripe fruit. You realize that ripe sounds like end, and the end is coming because Israel is ripe for judgment. And there's this clever pun work that is being developed here that you see in the Hebrew that gets lost in the English. Now, this is important to understand because as we get to the post-exilic prophets later, we're going to see a decline in the prophets. The prophets are going to decline in their ability to actually be good prophets. And we'll talk about that in more detail when we get to that. But one of the things that shows this decline is that every time God says, see this, Amos is immediately right there and saying, no, 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 no. I don't think that's good, God. And God's like, okay. And then God shows him something else, and he gets the pun, and he's like in tune with God and finishing his sentence, so to speak. And he's just witty, and he gets it, and he's in tune with God, and he's boom, 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 boom. He's on. Then you get to Zechariah, one of the last prophets, and God says, hey, what do you see, Zechariah? And he shows him a vision. Zechariah's like, I don't know. I have no idea what's going on. And it's like, and you're going to see that gradually from prophet to prophet. They're going to be in tune, and Isaiah's going to be kind of one of the last ones. And then they're going to be like, I don't know, I don't know. And you're going to see this decline more and more, and they seem to be out of touch with God. And one of the reasons this is happening is as Israel as a whole falls away from God, the cream of the crop are going to be picked to be the prophets of God. But as the whole of Israel falls further and further and further and further away, the cream of the crop is also going to become less and less and less. So that by the time he's picking prophets, yes, they're godly men, and, and yes, they're, they're chosen by God, but they don't seem to be really in tune and in step with the mind of God like they used to because the culture as a whole isn't teaching God and isn't connected to God like they used to. You need to understand that that is the way the culture works. Yes, you can see the culture declining, but as you see the culture declining, the risk that you also take is that the, the cream of the crop individuals will begin to lose touch because there are no more teachers teaching them, so to speak. Because as you decline from God or move away from God, then your knowledge of God becomes less and the people that can teach you becomes less. And, and this is what we're going to see as we go through the prophets. And this is why Amos Amos is the cream of the crop of all the written prophets. And I'm not saying all the prophets because there have been many who have come before him, but the ones that we have written down of what he was saying and how he was speaking. And he gets it. He's in tune with God's mind. And this is what makes him so amazing and so powerful.